We've heard much talk, even debate, about the modern motorcycle with its computer systems and how it affects one's ability to ride to remote or far-off places. Some riders insist on riding bikes with older technology, while others say that the new systems are reliable and they'll take that remote chance of having a problem and ride that modern bike. But the choices for motorcycles without computer technology, well, that's dwindling quickly as manufacturers try to modernize their lineup and comply with emission requirements around the globe. But what is this system we're so afraid of? The computer that is oh-so-magical, mysterious, and yet loathsome for a rider with a breakdown. Is it really as out of reach, as impenetrable, or difficult to understand as many would have us believe? Well, I think not. And today we're going to talk to an expert about it and get it broken down in layman's terms so we can all understand what this is all about and what we can do about it. We're also going to talk about travel and bikes. I kind of think there's something for everyone in here today. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicum. Ted Simon. Austin Venn. Simon Pavey. Bill Bragu. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. An electrical circuit is pretty simple, especially when we're talking about motorcycles because we're talking about DC, which is an acronym for direct current. Unlike your home, which is AC, the acronym for alternating current, and a much higher voltage, either probably 120 volts or 240 volts in your home, the AC electricity in your home is deadly to work with, without a doubt. But not so much for the DC current or DC circuit that you find on most motorcycles. And that's probably been since, I don't know, maybe in the 60s when Honda first introduced the CB750 with electric start. It became sort of the norm. Harley-Davidson also introduced electric start in the mid-60s. So it sort of became the norm after that. It's not so much the electric start that we're talking about here. It's just circuits. And when you add an electric start to a motorcycle, you need circuits to support that. And then the lights and everything else comes along with that. And and even the electric start was not new for the 60s. I mean, the first electric start is documented back in, I think, 1914 for Indian motorcycle. They had an electric start. So it's been around for a long time, but it's been really popular on motorcycles for over 60 years. Now, to oversimplify things when we're talking about a DC circuit, the DC circuit kind of works like this. You've got a battery with some stored power and that battery has a positive and negative terminal. The electricity wants to flow from one terminal to the other, but of course it can't because it's not connected. And if you did connect that, that would be a short circuit and that would be dangerous because that creates unlimited flow of current and a battery holds a fair bit of current so it will melt things and the battery could even explode from it. So it needs something between those two terminals. It needs a load like a light bulb. Now a light bulb just wired between those two terminals would illuminate. It would be on. So you'd have one wire coming from your positive terminal up to one terminal and light bulb. And from the other terminal and light bulb going down to the negative, 
you've got a circuit. And let's imagine that's in your motorcycle and it's spread out a ways and the wires are running through around your frame in different areas. And that light bulb goes out. Now, it's fairly simple to diagnose the problem if that light bulb goes out by using what's called a test light. Test light is very simple because it's, it's basically the same thing I just described to you. It's a light bulb set up to test a circuit, except this light bulb is in a little holder that looks uh, kind of like a screwdriver, except there's a sharp tip for poking into wires, actually piercing the insulation on a wire. And the other side, the wire that comes off the sort of negative side of the test light, clamps on to ideally the ground. So you put the clamp onto ground and you use the test probe to probe the circuit, starting at the battery, at the positive side of the battery, because most motorcycles are negative ground. So they, they hook that negative side of the, the battery to the ground, which is the, really, it's bonded to the frame. It's called ground, but I'm not, I'm trying not to confuse things here. So you hook that clamp on your test light to the negative side of the battery. And then you start at the battery by testing the terminal. You see the light illuminate. So you've got power there and you work your way up the circuit towards the light bulb until the, the light in your test light no longer illuminates. So when it no longer illuminates, you know it's not getting electricity up to there. And you know there's a break in the circuit somewhere before your last test. So it's fairly simple, you can imagine, to figure out, you know, where a broken circuit is. An open circuit, that's called an open circuit. There's also a short circuit. Maybe the wire rubs through on the frame. It grounds to the frame and it's a short circuit. Now, a circuit would not be as I just described there because any circuit you would put on a bike has what's called a fuse on the positive side, as close as you can to the battery. And the idea of the fuse is, is that if the current exceeds what that circuit is designed for, then that fuse blows, so pops. So basically it, it, it opens the circuit. And with that, it saves the wiring. Because what would happen is the same thing I said would happen if you cross the terminals in the battery. If you've got a short circuit on your motorcycle, say before that bulb in that circuit I described, if there was no fuse, the wires would actually just heat up and it would melt the insulation on them and probably catch fire and your motorcycle would catch fire and it would be a terrible thing. So you see that little fuse, very, very important. Now, you don't really need to understand everything that I've been talking about here so far. I mean, I think you probably do, but it's just to illustrate how straightforward the circuits have been on our motorcycles or were. I say were because like all technology, things become more and more advanced now, if you think back to 1991, you probably bought a new Mercedes-Benz W140. <laughs> okay, maybe you didn't buy the Mercedes-Benz. I sure didn't. But if you did, or if you're aware of it, that was the first car in the automotive field that had what's called the CAN bus system. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, this changed the way circuits, or at least some circuits, worked on vehicles and it spread from there, arriving on the first motorcycles near the early 2000s with BMW or possibly Ducati being the first one, first, it doesn't matter, but it was really popularized, I think, became more mainstream, at least in motorcycles, from BMW because they were very excited about the CAN bus system and what it can do for, well, I'm not sure if it's for riders or if it's for manufacturing process or what it is, but it was an improvement in the way that many people look at this. So what is CAN bus and what does it mean for riders? How does it change the way we diagnose a problem? How does it change a circuit? Is it reliable? Is it repairable? Because CAN bus is on most modern motorcycles now, with some exceptions. So what is it? What does it mean for reliability and for those riding into remote or far off places? These are all questions we're going to tackle today. Now, it was Bosch, you know, that big automotive company that invented CAN bus. But most, if not all manufacturers are using it now, as I said. 
not just automotive and motorcycle either. It's in manufacturing all over. It's ubiquitous in, in the, I guess, the modernization of the way we live. So you can't go and hide under a rock, stick your head in the sand and pretend this isn't here. We need to understand this, at least on some level. Now, when it comes to motorcycle CAN bus, again, it was popularized by BMW. They got very excited about it in the early 2000s. And most people at that time, I think, were scratching their heads, perhaps riding in terror of having an issue with their bike. Because, you know, if your bike quits, you'll have no idea what to do with this thing. Because this new CAN bus system was kind of like a closed can, dare I say the pun. You couldn't see inside and you didn't know how it worked anyway, even if you could open it up. It was impossible to diagnose with a test light or a multimeter. I know I didn't mention multimeter before, just for simplicity, but basically a multimeter is a tool for checking continuity and resistance and much more. It doesn't matter because the CAN bus system changes all that. Back to the BMWs. With so many riders buying these BMWs equipped with CAN bus, it was kind of scary, I think, for a lot of riders. And the GS was the one that was the, the big popular one with this CAN bus system on it. And one rider decided to, well, simplify it or make it at least accessible to the average do-it-yourself person. He invented a reader that you could plug into the CAN bus system that would read error codes and more, sort of demystifying to some degree the CAN bus system and allowing people to even do some of their own repairs, understand what's going on and what, what is going wrong. And it took off like crazy. Suddenly the average rider could get information and diagnostics were, that were inaccessible up to that point, except for at the dealership. The GS911 was the first product, and for many, it was, it was like turning on a light in an otherwise pitch-black room. So to engineer something like this, to make this GS911 that was this, this reader that could read into the CAN bus system and understand what these computers are doing, that takes a, a lot to understand how it works, to decipher the manufacturer's code, and you take some serious work and understanding, in-depth understanding, to figure out how it works and then how you're going to make a reader so the average person can read it. So I guess that's probably a really good place for us to start. I'm Stefan Thiel. I'm from Hex Innovate. And uh, to go a little further back, I was actually originally... Uh, born in Namibia, spent most of my younger life in South Africa, and uh, am currently based in the UK with my family. Stefan, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. So you're the owner of Hex Innovate, is that what it is? I am indeed, yes. It's Hex Innovate in the UK. And what is Hex Innovate? Hex Innovate is a technology company focused around um, automotive products. We have uh, diagnostic tools, some of which are for motorcycles. There's the GS911, uh, which is for BMW, pretty much all BMW motorcycles. And then you, we manufacture a couple of uh, hardware products in the diagnostic industry for, for cars, for passenger vehicles. Um, probably the most notable of those is uh, for VCDS, is uh, arguably the best aftermarket tool for VW and Audi. And I think probably in the motorcycle industry, the way uh, people would recognize the name is by saying the GS11, sorry, GS911. Actually, a funny thing there, it's the GS9 on one. So there's a little story behind that in that um, we released it. Obviously, it was intended for GSs initially, uh, 
um, you know, whoever would uh, would use a diagnostic tool other than a GS when they were, you know, far from uh, civilization, hence GS 911 uh, being the emergency number. And we got this little letter from uh, Porsche saying, hey, guys, um, we have a uh, trademark on 911. Uh, we have no issue with you guys calling it 911. So, you know, please make a point of referring to your tool as GS 911. Oh, thank you very much, Porsche. That's very kind of you. Wow. Well, nine one one's a pretty popular number, you know, for emergency exactly. too. <laughs> oh, that's, um, but uh, but it was really nice, Porsche. I mean, I've heard so many stories of, um, you know, companies like that being really, really difficult and just you know barring you from from using it, and you have to rebrand. Yeah. Um, and they were pretty much just you. Know, it's not the space we're playing in, but uh, to avoid confusion you know, please adhere to the following. Yeah, sure. Right. You mentioned that um, you grew up, did you say Zambia? No, no, Namibia. Namibia, sorry. You grew up in Namibia. Just just north of uh, South Africa on the West Coast. Then you moved to South Africa? Correct. So at the time it was called Southwest Africa and it was still part of um, South Africa. I think Namibia only got their independence in the if I have to take a wild guess, close on, you know, give or take a couple of years, but around the 1990 mark. And it was still part of, uh, Namibia was part of South Africa. And um, some of our family, my mom's my mom's dad was in, in, in South Africa and he was falling rather ill and we moved to South Africa. And I finished my high school there and then eventually university. And then how do you end up in the UK? Oh, it's uh, one of those things, you know, Come, you start a company and uh, you find that half your market is in Europe and the other half is in the USA. And um, you want to be, or you have the need to be closer to to your market. Oh. It, was a, it was a natural move, kind of a, a progression from, from uh, where we were to expand the business and to sort of be closer to our, our market. You're also a rider. I do, yes. What, what, what kind of rider and how did you get into riding? Uh, a very poor rider, however, doesn't make <laughs> up for my, for my lack of keenness. So I, I say to everybody, you know, that typical um, adage where, you know, what's the best bike? The one you have, um, or at least the one you currently have. But no, I, I mostly being based in South Africa, being having been based in South Africa, I've always liked mountain biking. And um, eventually when I got my first bike, it was a... CB750 that I purchased from a friend uh, in three separate boxes. <laughs> Took a couple of months to put it back together again and crashed it on the first outing. <laughs> um, you know, tr- trying to keep up with my mates who'd been riding for years. Was this a finance thing? Is that why you bought it in boxes? Or was this a, like a skill thing where you wanted to put it together? Uh, both, both. I had literally, it was my first year after varsity starting, you know, just uh, starting a new job or, you know, your life in, in, in as, a, as a corporate worker. So finances were tight. Um, but also thinking, you know, I, you know you, you're so tied up eight to five every day in, in the nitty gritty of, you know, computers and everything else that um, it's nice to just get lost in the technical uh you know, doodles of trying to figure out how this works and, you know, sinking four carbs and, you know, putting it all together again. That was kind of my, my first um, dabbling in, into the mechanics of a, of a motorcycle. And it was just fun. Um, and, and uh, yeah, as I said, I, the skill was uh, certainly a, a lot less than my friends and around a right-hand hairpin 
Um, I drifted a little to the outside and there was uh, some loose debris on the road and, you know, courteously put it down. As my friend pointed out, it was not a fall because there was no separation. And and uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> wait, wait, to wait, no separate. In other words, you stayed on the bike is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of the, the, the old thing we have. We, <laughs> especially on mountain bikes, we, we say that it's not a fall if there's no separation. Right. So as long as you skid to um, a stop and you're able to get up, then at that point you literally got off your bike. Correct. You know, right. bent, bent, the, uh, bent the gear lever back into position again and off we went. <laughs> So did you get uh, any riding lessons after that? Did you do the School of Hard Knocks? Oh, School of Hard Knocks, definitely. Um, After that, I put the bike back together, you know, did a couple of more miles. And then eventually, uh, most of my friends, that's where I was going with the whole thing with being South Africa. Um, At the time, sure, I think more than 65% of the roads were uh, dirt roads. So, you know, that's not the typical thing you, you, you jump onto a CB750. So... You know, my finances got a little better and I bought my first BMW, which was a little, those Mandarin yellow uh, F650 GSs. Mm, the single cylinder. And that's kind of, exactly, yeah. uh, the thumpers. And, and that's kind of where my my real reading started. You know, we used to go out into, uh, just outside of uh, Cape Town is, is, is this, the Karoo, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles of dirt road and that was just you know phenomenal because you know the the roads were always a little let's just say treacherous um with other people on the road um you know some non not so safe uh, riders in terms of vehicles so we loved doing the off-road stuff getting off the beaten track uh, whether it's dirt roads or whether it's trails and that's kind of how we started riding um and just just absolutely just for fun and loved it you know camping over weekends pack a tent uh, wild camping so yeah, just a, a lot of fun. So adventure riding right from the start. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's like the CB750 was literally just the door into riding. And then I realized, well, you know, this, this, this is, I want more. And, um, you know, being on the doorstep of, of all these dirt tracks and, and, and dirt roads, it, it was a natural progression. And you've done, um, you've done some longer trips as well. You did one in 2010. I did, unfortunately. Uh, none or none that long in between, but that was a phenomenal trip. Probably my most enjoyable trip to date. What, what was that? Talk uh, about which, that. Yeah, that was um, two of us. Uh, actually, the friend and colleague, uh, Corbus, who started GS911 with me, the two of us. Um, he was on a 1200 adventure and I was on an 800 uh, GS at the time. And we sort of went up into Namibia. Both our parents uh, were still living in Namibia, sort of, you know, had a last hurrah, you know, the last uh, proverbial last supper, um, changed our tires and off we went into the wild yonder of Africa, which is, um, you know, not as wild as, as people imagine, especially, you know, 2010 and on. It was actually quite an easy ride, except for a bit of trouble mechanically and uh this was just so much fun we went through uh, botswana into the caprivi into malawi up the lake and then we decided uh, unlike most other people we wanted to do the western side of tanzania so we went up the uh, what seemed to be the highway uh the b5 on a map which uh, it turns out that there's a section of about 100 kilometers that isn't really connected between the north and the south. 
And, um, you know, but you live and learn and you've got adventure bikes and you make it work. And, and, you know, those are the fun things you remember. What, what do you mean you make um, it work? So you actually, did you cross that, that section? Yeah. Yeah. No, it is, it, it is definitely not something a passenger vehicle would do. Um, but on adventure bikes, you know, it's a bit sandy and a bit rocky and there are a couple of steps and things like that, but you know, not, nothing uh, treacherous or untoward, um, just fun. So that that was that was nice, and and of course the the um, the other interesting thing of Africa is uh, that um, you don't find fuel anywhere and everywhere. So you get to these little mud hut villages, and they've got this um, you know little little hut, and it's got anything between you know ten and fifty uh, seven hundred and fifty milliliter wine bottles, or any bottle that they can put anything in that has some form of combustible orange liquid in it you're not always sure how much of it is fuel <laughs> um those are the kind of things you find in sort of the the more you know off the beaten track things and, and that was quite fun i really enjoyed that and then you know that eventually made um us travel through you know burundi rwanda and then into uganda and uh you know then we made our way to kenya and sort of turned around we went around lake victoria which was quite pretty and all in all just a very very enjoyable trip you know that that typical thing of just getting away from it all um and you know something i i wish i can do uh, in the not so distant future again those times that you bought fuel like that when you're talking about when they're pouring it in and of course many people who haven't been there have seen photographs of somebody getting fuel that way because it's so novel did you mm-hmm. run into any issues was there any times where you bought stuff that was obviously not fuel or a mix no, no, none at all. And I must say, we we ran into a couple of people that uh, had KTM's at the time, and and the KTM's were seem seemingly burning uh, holes in their cylinders. Um, reading up about it a little later, remember this is you know the guys were using late two thousand style bikes, and and uh, apparently it had to do with them not. Uh, working so well on the fuel, but that's that's all because the it's low that I that, exactly it's yeah. it's such low octane. Uh, but I must say that the beamers were brock solid, and I'm not I'm not pro beamer. That that is you know just something I picked up on the side, mm-hmm. uh, but never had any issues. Had a little bit of a of a clutch issue um, on our way up. Uh, as I said, we went into uh, Botswana and from Botswana into Zambia, Zambia into Malawi, and sort of halfway, well, I think, sorry, this was still in Zambia, yeah, on our way to Malawi, I realized that my clutch was slipping. And it was a, a relatively new, uh, but it was a first generation uh, F800. And, you know, later we found out they did have clutch issues and, you know, there was a recall. And obviously you don't know that on a relatively new bike. Mm-hmm. I think they were only out for a couple of months at the time and we'd done one or two sort of test trips. Anyway, uh, making a long story short, I found I had a, had a bit of a clutch issue. And um, found, you know, how these things uh, tend to work. I sat in uh, the BMW dealership in Cape Town and a guy approached me and said, hi, I am, and oh, for the life of me, I can't remember his name now, but he was the editor of one of the um, bike magazines. Um, and he said, uh, I hear you're going to do a trip through Africa. Um, here, write down this number. This is a friend of mine. He uh, has the sort of on the side as, 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 a, as a side project he runs the unofficial ktm dealership in zambia and he's close uh close to the to the to the main city um and if you ever have any issues you know give him a, a holler 
And as I happened to, you know, have my clutch issues, um, we eventually stopped one late morning um, at a nursery and I hauled out my little black book and there weren't too many numbers in there. There was mostly the conversion rates of, of currencies and so forth, you know. Um, internet wasn't a thing at the time and and, and uh, doing that over your phone was was fairly expensive. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and I took out this number and uh, and I phoned the guy and I said, look, you, you have no idea who I am, but I got this number from so-and-so. And he said, yeah, sure, what's the problem? And I explained my problem to him and he said, where are you? And I gave him the name of the nursery. He said, are you kidding me? And I said, no. And he said, well, you know, uh, on your way to the nursery, probably... 500 meters before you took the turn off to the nursery, there's another road that goes to your right. And two kilometers down that road, that's, uh, you know, my small holding. Just drive down there, get yourself down there, knock on the gate, tell my wife I sent you and and wait for me for this afternoon. And that's how we met him. (laughs) And he has a full-blown workshop in his barn. And we sat there, we spent the evening taking the clutch apart. And, you know, I had the technical documentation with me and um, you know, we sure enough, we measured the clutch plates and they were out of spec and we're like, oh, crikey, we need, uh, you know, we, we need a new clutch. And, um, the next morning I phoned a, a mate of mine, friend and colleague in, in, in Cape Town. I said, Hey, bud, we, we have a problem. You know, we need a new clutch. He's up, oh, no problem. And he phones me back later in the afternoon. He says, well, you know, good news and bad news. So the good news is I can get you a clutch. The bad news is it's six, six weeks, X stock Germany. Ah. He says, but don't worry, I'll phone you tomorrow. And uh, sure enough, the next morning he phones me and he says, well, you know, the uh, the dealership had a bike on the floor and knowing where you are, um, they graciously uh, took the clutch out and packaged it, packaged it up for me and uh, it's already been sent off to you. And they'll wait for six weeks until they get one from, from Germany. And sure enough, three days later, the clutch arrived and we put it back together and you know, the trip continued. So yeah, those are the little, little things that you remember. Yeah. Just incredible. So you, you, the way you say it though, you say you make it sound like Africa's easy. Everybody always thinks Africa's the real deal. It, like w- what happens here? Like, is it the real oh, deal or the, is it easy? A, a bit of both. It depends where you go. Um, if you are on bikes, it's, my perception was it's easier than in 4x4s because every little town has a police stop uh, ahead of it and behind it. Um, and they, you know, we'd used to travel oh, max 80 kilometers an hour, um, you know, because we knew we weren't going to get there anytime soon again. So you want to get some of the scenery in. And the 4x4 convoys would come past us. And of course, the next uh, stop uh, the next little town, they would be stopped at the police stop and we'd be waiting behind 24x4s and the, uh, the security guys of the police, they just wave at you and, 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 you know, wave you forward and knowing that you probably don't have a lot of space to hide anything, they just wave you past. So we never had any issues um, with, with, with police or searches or raids or nothing. It was just so easy. And, but I also have to say at the time and still now, but, uh, at the time, the West and probably central part of Africa was a lot worse um, in terms of its, the eastern part was probably the tourist highway. Um, you know, it's it's really so easy. I mean, we would be on a desolate road where we would stop and sort of, you know, look at each other and just make sure on our GPSs that we were on the right road. And sure enough, you know, somebody would 
pop up out of the long grass and go, hello, are you okay? <laughs> you go, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. We're, we're fine. We're fine. Um, just, you know, friendly people uh, always wanting to help and so forth. So that's sort of the, the eastern part of Africa is is relatively easy. But, you know, being Africa, the rule is, the rule is always, it changes quick. Um, so keep an eye out for travelers coming from the front. You know, these days it's, it's a little easier staying in touch. Um, with news and and what happens mm-hmm. um, during that time, you you pretty much just ask anybody and everybody coming coming from the opposite end whether there are any issues. So a really interesting trip. And when you come back from that, does it does it sort of give you a taste for more? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I just had a look. I, I kept a very short uh, blog at the time, and um, it ends off, "Would you go again?" Uh, the question and. Uh, my comment was yes tomorrow. <laughs> All right. So absolutely. I mean, if if you've got that wonder wanderlust and and you know biking is something you love, uh, it just sort of underpins why you ride. It's it's just fun. It is, you know, experiencing new cultures, and that's kind of why I like uh, biking so much. You know, as opposed to these days having a, a family. Um, you know, we drive to a place, live in a hotel, spend four days and, you know, move on. You don't get to know the uh, sort of the, the innards of the culture, mm-hmm. you know, that you kind of experience when you get to a place, you haven't booked any place to sleep, you're trying to find a place, um, you know, ultimately, eventually we got to a place where the guy said, yeah, probably not the safest area, but go and speak to the reverend of the church there. Maybe you can camp in the church grounds, you know, and suddenly you, you know, go knock on their door and you spend the whole evening um, chatting to them and learning so much about the area that, that you wouldn't have if you found a hotel or a and b or whatever it was. Right. Yeah. That, 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 to me, that's what makes it fun. And when you come back from this trip, you go back to work which is why you probably haven't done another trip like this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, work evolved. Right. So work before you started Hex Innovate, what were you doing for work? So I had a bursary from the local power utility. And uh, um, the power utility is sort of not the most well-spoken about uh, authority in South Africa these days. Um, South Africa has more and more power outages um, and many reasons for that, Um, but just not stable power supply. Anyway, that's a, that, that's a story for another day. Um, So I had, I had that, I worked for them uh, after, after I did my master's or finished my master's, I I had to go and work for them for a while and eventually was bored hideously. (laughs) <laughs> and um sort of um you know made made my way out of the out of the company found a company that was doing um automotive automotive stuff actually did that for two years and then a uh, a bunch of friends approached me they had just started a software company and um they they drew me in and i worked for them for a couple of years um before then and at the time i had already started hex um sort of on the side and, you know, they knew about it and we had this rule that, you know, it, it shouldn't interfere with, with my 85 and, and it didn't. Um, and then, you know, there comes a point when, you know, when it does uh, start to interfere and you've got to make a decision, you know, do you do this permanently or do you just, you know, throttle it? And um, Do you take the chance and do it permanently? I took the chance, the risk, absolutely. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those, you know. Uh, you know, there were a couple of uh, factors, but, you know, ultimately it, it's one of those things, you know, people, people often ask me and I say, you know, 
life is a lot what you decide to do and your mindset, but it's also a certain amount of uh, risk-taking combined with a certain amount of good fortune. Um, Mm. You know, there are so many things that have to sort of align. You know, I always talk about the stars aligning Um, and and things just work. You know, a friend of mine has the saying that, um, you know, life is what happens while you make other plans. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so enough. true, isn't it? I mean, because <laughs> you can have you can have the best idea, the best plan, the best people, and still not be there at the right time. You know, it, it has to be a, a, like a perfect storm sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So that was back in what two thousand somewhere in that era. Yeah, that was. Um, I, I moved into X Microsystems or permanently so in two thousand four, mm-hmm. um, and as things just kind of worked out for me, that that's sort of you know what happened, and we were manufacturing sort of these automotive diagnostic interfaces, call it, you know, the, the interfaces between uh, the vehicle itself and a, a PC, um, you know, to to pretty much do what they do at the dealerships um, when you take a car for a service. Is this for the consumer to use? This is for the consumer to use, yes. It's a, it's a brilliant product uh, called uh, VCDS. It was Vacom at the time, a, a US company called Rostec. And um, it is a <laughs> an interesting and long story how our how our paths crossed. It's one one of those things again, being at the right place at the right time, meeting the right people. You know, a phenomenal person, the 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 owner uh, of Frostec, and you know, we started developing these uh, interfaces for them. And this business grew, and at some point in time, I realized, but uh, you know, now that I've gone on my own, you know, it's really. Um, risky to have a business built on one product and um you know then you try and diversify and you 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 kind of go so what do i uh, know a lot of and what do i have uh, some experience in and those were diagnostic tools and you know so what else do i like oh hang on a minute i like bikes and and biking and adventure riding so you know at that time we were already uh, contemplating doing a trip through africa and kubus and myself were going well you know if we do go, it would be nice to have a diagnostic tool for the bikes. And um, we started looking around and sure enough, there was nothing available for motorcycles at the time. Mm-hmm. And we kind of went, hmm, you know, that might be a niche. So we looked into a couple of other brands. You know, ultimately this this has to be a a, a profitable business venture um, as well. And then eventually, you know, the, the Beamers just came out trumps. I mean, those were models we'd like to ride they were effective in, in South Africa on the kind of riding we like to do. And um, it was the right market for us. And uh, we already had a bit of a foothold in in the uh, in the BMW market and the BMW dealers and dealerships. And, um, you know, we started talking to to them. And you mean because started... of VW, because of your, your, your diagnostic tool for VW vehicles? Correct. Yeah. Right. So, so we had a lot of experience there already. Yeah. And that, that's kind of how the GS901 came to be. And so what is the GS911? What, what does it do? It is a diagnostic tool for BMW motorcycles. If you think of what the BMW dealership can do with their diagnostic tool, the GS911 can pretty much do the same. There are a couple of things where we kind of hold back. We have right from the beginning made the uh, conscious uh, effort, uh, conscious decision that we would not flash um, any controllers. Um, you know, there's all kinds of uh, copyright, uh, potential copyright issues with that. Um, and also, you know, we try our best uh, to be on the 
right side of uh, BMW. Um, you know, this was, we were foreseeing this to be a, a long-term venture and the last thing you want to do is tread on some toes. And um, I must say it's been, it's been many years and, um, you know, we, we every so often see uh, at bmw.de registration come through um, and we know they use it. And the whole point of uh, giving them a tool like this, and we've had many of these discussions with from dealer principals right through to, you know, some some folks at BMW, is that um, guys are going to work on their own bikes, especially as they get, you know, two, three, four years down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, why not give them a tool to do it correctly? Um, you know, long past are the days where you would, um, you know, tap on the carburetor and, you know, change the oil and make sure your chain was tensioned and say, right, that's the service I'm done. Um, you know, my favorite, uh, example, uh, using the GS901 right in the beginning was I take one of the, the, BM- the BMWs were the first ones to have those thick coils, you know, the coil on plug. Mm-hmm. And I take the, uh, the coil and I take a little copper thread literally on the on the primary side and I would just um, put that around the signal and the ground and I'd uh, plug the connector in and I'd you know just just leave it there and for many many years you would switch on the ignition and you'd hit the start button and just nothing happened but there was no yellow triangle there was no red triangle there was absolutely nothing but the um the engine controller obviously uh, realizes there's a there's a short on the on one of the uh, coils and it just, you know, puts the circuit off uh, for, for the coils and the thing just doesn't fire up. And then, um, you know, we used to at um, rallies and so forth, uh, demos that we did, we'd do that and we'd have the people guess uh, what the issue was. And of course you'd get any any and every possible answer. And then plug in the GS901 and would say, um, output disabled for, uh, you know, coils i can't remember the exact um fault code and you know it's it's pretty much an insight into the brain so to speak that you don't have you know and that people didn't realize they needed um and that kind of came with our experience from the vw side where um you know once people know it kind of creates that understanding you know we kind of pitched the gs nine on one not just as a carry it with you when you have trouble it's like get to know your bike and um, plug it in read the real-time values look what they do see how they differ see what the max and minimum values are kind of get a feel because people were at the time so um should i say confused you know because People kind of knew uh, a carburetor. You know, there's air, fuel, and spark, and, you know, if you've got that right, you're good and you're golden. And we used to find that in the initial years a lot. You would find um, the on the official dealerships, you'd have the young technicians that literally, if a bike came along and uh, they couldn't, or they could plug it in, but it didn't have a fault code or whatever, they were stumped. They literally couldn't think first principles in terms of air, fuel, and spark. Whereas, um, you know, the older generation was absolutely set on air, fuel, and spark, but they didn't want to touch the computers again. You know, they were like, oh, no, 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 you, you do that. And and sort of, I think the first, easily the first, you know, three, four years, most of our sort of um, unofficial time was spent educating people, you know, whether it was the techs and the technicians right up to the actual, um, the owners of bikes, you know, they'd been plugging in diagnostic tools, uh, the owners of bikes have been plugging in diagnostic tools or OBD2 scanners into their cars for years, you know, and you, you give them a GS9 and one, they go, Ooh, are you sure I can plug this in? 
what yeah. will happen. <laughs> well, it's scary. I mean, you got an expensive bike there and you know, you don't want to take a chance. Yeah. And, and that's for that reason, you know, we, we kind of, uh, took a couple of, uh, decisions in terms of, you know, not flashing any controllers. Um, you know, and then of course, uh, when it came to the security, um, you know, initially when they brought out the, uh, immobilizers, you know, everybody that went cross country or, you know, did a, did an adventure, wanted to disable the, uh, the immobilizers. And, uh, you know, there are ways and means, but we just said, look, that, that's, that's just not something we are willing to get into because mm. it has the potential to be used in nefarious ways. And, um, you know, that will definitely not put us in the good books of BMW or at least get us out of the good books of yeah. BMW. And of course it would be. I mean, if you want to steal a bike, then what better thing to do than get a little exactly. device that could turn off yeah, the security system? The last thing I want uh, to have our tool, the GS901, you know, associated with people stealing bikes. Right. So that's a no-no. Anyway, well, that's so incredible yeah, that's, that it's not, it's not like the technology isn't there. It's not like you can't do it, but you're choosing not to do these things, like to, to flash them or or to disable the um, the security device. Well, that's interesting. You, you mentioned a few things here. And now there's some people who aren't going to understand it because you just mentioned about the old school, uh, the old school people. It is tough to get your head around computers and they seem very, very scary if you don't know anything about them. So I'm, I want to tackle this just very, very quickly and, and see if we can't, you know, make this into a little bit of layman's terms. Okay, let's take a break here. I want to tell you about two things, but also I want to give you a little breather before we get into some more technical, but completely understandable information. When we come back, we're going to dig into OBD2 and then CAN bus, uh, OBD2 just briefly, and then into CAN bus. And if you don't know what that means or any of that means so far, don't worry about it. You will. But also, if you're thinking you don't work on your bike, so why learn it? Because if you take your bike in for work, not knowing what they're talking about or knowing what they're talking about can make all the difference in many ways. But think about just this one. What happens to the person that walks into service, holds open their wallet and says, don't hurt me. Stay with us. A number of years ago, we had Jeremy LeBreton on the show. Jeremy is an avid motorcyclist. He's a highly skilled rider as well. He's also the owner of Altrider. Altrider manufactures a bunch of ADV parts. And what we were talking about in that episode was crash bars, the making of crash bars in general, and what goes into them, what they're made of, et cetera, et cetera. We learned a lot in the episode about that. But I've come to learn since then that not all crash bars are built to these high standards that Altrider holds for their products. And I was just talking with Jeremy the other day about this ad that I'm doing now for the show. I asked him what his selling points were. And he said the most interesting thing. He said, the buyer should ask questions and compare the products. Look at the manufacturing process and discover the difference between high quality versus low quality. No marketing hype there. I mean, what he's really saying is hold his product, all rider, up to any other one, fair and square, and compare. That's a risky thing to do unless you already know that your product is top quality. Now, I know everyone doesn't understand necessarily what to look for in these sorts of things. So with crash bars, here's some things to consider. And I asked Jeremy about this. One, he says mounts. Look at the mounts. If they're oversized holes with lard washers, that tells you that there's not a tight tolerance in the manufacturing process. The welds, check the welds. Are they rough? Are they very neat? Are they laser cut, copied, and TIG welded? 
or are they using older methods like MIG welding, which has a lot of heat and distortion? Those two could probably go hand in hand, heat and distortion, twisting it, and you'd need larger holds to get the things to mount. You can also look and see what other people say about installing them. Often, especially with crash bars, some manufacturers are very, very difficult to install. Anyway, the other thing he said was material. Now, according to Jeremy, crash bars should be made of stainless steel. And that makes perfect sense to me because powder coating gets scratched and rusts. It'll flex and crack and rust. And the next thing you know, you've got rust streaks running down your bike because the powder coating is cracked or scratched. I think most riders will understand the value that stainless steel brings and also the expense that all of this adds in the making of the product. But it's really important if you want to get good products for your bike, do your research, get a manufacturer, use a manufacturer that produces high quality stuff. Pick up the phone and call them. If you pick up the phone and talk to people at Altrider, they're more than happy to talk to you, answer your questions and have a conversation about what you're interested in. You don't get that a lot nowadays. The website is altrider, A-L-T-Rider.com, altrider.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, altrider.com. Heidi and David Winters are the, the driving force, the inventors behind the Atlas Throttle Lock. But the name that I really want you to remember is the Atlas Throttle Lock, because this thing's going to change the way you ride. This is the absolute best, bar none, hands down, throttle lock that I've ever tried. And when you look at it, you're going to recognize it right off. This is a finely machined piece of equipment that is dead easy to install on your bike. It clamps under your handlebar. I think it's just a one set screw. It's got a unique little jaw that locks in. I mean, every part of this thing is so, it's like a Swiss watch. It's really beautiful. But the way it works is really what gets me. And, And this is what I'm always after with things. It's got two buttons on it. One you press for engage. The other one you press for disengage. They have positive feedback. When you press these buttons, you don't need to look at them. You don't need to glimpse down to check what you're doing. You know by the feel. That's important as a rider. This throttle lock gives your, your hand and your wrist a break. It lessens fatigue while you ride. It will literally change the way you ride. And the nice thing about it is, I mentioned it, come, it, it installs easy. It also comes off easy, so you can swap it from one bike to another. This is a beautiful piece of equipment. And one of the other nice things about it is you can adjust the throttle without having to disengage. Look at the Atlas Throttle Lock, and you'll understand what I mean. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Atlasthrottlelock.com. You mentioned first OBD2. What, mm-hmm. Quickly, what is that? Uh, onboard Diagnostics 2. So in 1996, if memory serves, the CARB California Air Resource Board mandated a protocol that um, allowed a certain piece of test equipment called a OBD2 tester um, to be plugged into vehicles. And um, US vehicles had to be compliant as of, I think, sometime in 1996. And what that pretty much allowed the Uh, cops to do or the authorities uh, to do was to plug a specific device a generic device into any car and then make sure that it was uh, compliant in terms of emissions and that was sort of you know they were diagnostic tools from the oes but they were very different and they did a lot of different things Um, but this was a mandated and standardized protocol with which to make sure that vehicles essentially were uh, emissions compliant. The thinking there was that um, OEs, original equipment manufacturers, you know, the the manufacturers of of 
cars at the time, mm-hmm. would uh, standardize on this protocol for even their in-house diagnostics. But as we now know, many, many years later, that just didn't happen. Um, so what the OEs did at the time was to say, right, you know, you're mandating us to uh, to use this or support this protocol. We will add that, call it, uh, in layman's terms, think of it as a different language. So the, the VW and Audi or the BMW or the Ford would speak a specific language to the vehicle. You know, they, they have a specific set um, of rules, how they exchange data. And now they have the second set, which says, well, you know, here's the OBD2 and, you know, this is how we do things. So they would just um, support both. But the OE1 was much more advanced. I mean, we did a, a test and I think there's still an FAQ on, on uh, you know, Rostec's page where they took uh, the best OBD2 tool at the time scanned a car and it said zero fault codes and then they used their oe equivalent the 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 vacom or vcds at this point in time a tool and they scanned the same car at the same time and there were a myriad of fault codes on all kinds of different control units because a uh, the obd2 tool only did uh, engine controllers at the time now they do engine and transmission because transmission is so uh, closely linked to to emissions as well um, but yet they were, even on that vehicle, there were fault codes in the engine controller that the OBD2 protocol didn't pick up purely because those had nothing to do with uh, emissions. So the uh, OBD2 sort of algorithm inside the controller just ignored that. So it's not like it dug any deeper. It's just that it wasn't looking at those peripherals. It, exactly. Those it's just not emissions related. And, mm-hmm. you know, people, people many a times, even today still, we get uh, questions like, I've got an OBD2 scanner and it can talk to my bike. You know, why should I buy a GS911? You know, it, it's literally, it touches the tip of the iceberg and you've got a very, very small subset of issues that it looks at. And it doesn't even look at any of the other controllers. That's kind of, you know, you want that OE level um, compliance where you can talk to every control unit and read every fault code and, you know, then it just carries on. I mean, we do all kinds of um, logging and your know, calibrations. And if you change certain uh, sensors, you have to recalibrate them or realign them. And there's there's a lot of stuff to do. And, give, give an example this, for that. Um, if you even if you just if if you change your air fuel anything in the air fuel path, for instance. Um, so if you put an exhaust just, on, you swapped your exhaust just out. Just change a different exhaust. If you change the uh, uh, the air filter, then there are things we call long-term values that are sort of, you know, over time um, saved in the control unit. And they make up um, certain calibrations depending on, you know, what it measures in terms of the O2 sensor and your throttle position and so forth. And now suddenly you change that and it's all out of whack. You might find really rough idling or something like that. And it's because you've changed something in the air fuel path. And there's there's literally a calibration where you just go uh, to adaptations and calibrations and uh, you reset um, the air fuel uh, uh, ratio, which does throttle uh, calibration and it does the TPS uh, calibration. It, it literally just, you know, clears those values. You start afresh and goes, right, I'm back to zero. Off I go again. And this is all, um, all with the GS911. You can do this. All with the GS911. And it's connected Probably, to a computer? Um, the initial one was connected to a computer. There was a, the initial one was a yellow one. And then in 20, I think 15, we released the second generation, which is a red one. 
And there we have a USB only version, which uh, connects to a computer. And then we have a uh, USB and Wi-Fi version, which then allows you to uh, connect to pretty much, we have a PC software, obviously, that you can do offline PC stuff. But then we have, um, it's got a little embedded server. So you can be in the middle of the Mojave Desert and, um, you know, have a breakdown. And the little device ha has the ability to be a hotspot of its own. And your phone connects to that. And then you're scanning your bike. Um, you can do an auto scan, you know, reset all kinds of things. Uh, look at the sensor values. Um, very, very useful. Uh, what we found is uh, in, in the groups that we were riding and somebody takes a spill. You know, sometimes they knock off the um, uh, side stand switch or, you know, something else gets damaged. It's not not apparent immediately, you know, mm -hmm. and um, you do a scan and you have a look at the fault codes and you go, ah, OK, let's have a look there. And, you know, the, the other question we always get is, yes, but now I see a fault code and it says mm, throttle position sensor uh, malfunction or, or out of spec. I don't even know where to look but there is sure to be somebody in your group that does know where to look. And that's, this is, oh, that's this is kind of just the, the insight that you need to figure out what is wrong. Mm. Um, if, if you're on a trip, uh, if you, if you don't have that very much going back to the whole, uh, example that I used with the little short I introduced on the primary side of the coil, you know, if you, uh, didn't see that fault code, you would have no idea. It would take you, days presumably to you know eventually take things apart and go hey look you know this this looks like a little hair thickness wire on the primary side of well the ostensibly point. you'd never find it if it was if it was a real Correct. fault because it wouldn't be a wire you wouldn't be able to take it apart and find that wire Correct. there and, and Correct. some of the stuff you would not be able to do anything about like if it's a throttle position sensor there's little you're going to be able to do nothing you can do really without replacing that in the field but if it was the side stand switch or something like that yeah. then all of a sudden you've got a repair that you can do Absolutely. And you don't even need to have a test light and an understanding of circuits. In fact, that's going to get you in trouble with this sort of system. Nowadays. <laughs> it is. And these days, it's so difficult to get to anything to actually test. The bikes are so integrated. Uh, one of the, that kind of brings us into the, the easy can, um, if you like, um, where we, we kind of, you know, looked at the bikes and we thought, wow, they're getting really complicated and um, as I explained to you, sort of in our first interaction, we, we had this product that we designed for four by fours and, um, you know, it was a phenomenal product, <laughs> but just way too complicated. And I eventually, you know, just pulled it and put it on the shelf and said, Hey guys, you know, we did some phenomenal work, especially on the algorithms for the fusing and stuff like that, but it was too complex. And then when the, um, bikes started being released uh, with no ignition wires. You know, the control units are directly connected to the battery. And um, then they just go into deep sleep. And when you turn the ignition key, it literally just is a signal to the body controller, which then says, wake up the rest of the uh, um, the network. And, you know, they they um, get a signal that says, hey, you know, we're alive. And then and, and they, they start up and, you know, life life goes on. Mm -hmm. But there is not a ignition wire you know, per se that you can sort of, you know, tap off a, um, a good chunk of, 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 uh, of power to, to power anything. And that's just, you know, how, how bikes have evolved. You know, we say they're complex, but in many senses, they became sort of kind of easier, you know, a lot more, I almost want to say compartmentalized. 
Um, but you have to have a little bit of, you know, technical knowledge for one. And then for two, you um, sort of have to know how it all slots in, or you have to have some accessory to help you. And, you know, that's kind of where the, where the diagnostic tool on the one hand comes in, and then obviously the easy can as an accessory manager on the other side. Right. Of course, you, you need the proper tools, same as you always did before. These tools are just different. Now, I kind of want to peel back before we get into the easy can yeah, sure. and we'll get to that. But let's sort of peel back the, the mystique or a little bit of it anyway, as far as how this works. Basically, what we're talking about here is we've got computers on our motorcycle now. And when you're talking about, you know, there's a, there's a wire and I was saying that you can't use a test light, for instance, in places that you would have mm-hmm. otherwise, like before, if you had an ignition issue, I mean, you test to see if you're getting power to the switch. And then if you're getting power after the switch, well, that doesn't happen anymore in a lot of cases or in some cases, depending on what bike you have, it uses a different system. So can you talk about, um, I guess maybe we should start with CAN bus. What, what is that? Yeah, sure. CAN bus, I think the easiest way to think about CAN bus is a network. Um, if you can think of a computer network and you've got a couple of computers connected to each other, they're exchanging data through this, um, call it Ethernet, you know, I'm going to leave Wi-Fi and everything out of it at this point in time. And that's literally what CAN bus is. So uh, to give you an idea, let's take, I'm going to take another step back and um, one of the main reasons CAN bus was introduced in vehicles as well as in um, in, in, in motorcycles, obviously, um, is to save weight, the weight of the copper harness. I mean, there was a there was a wire running to the instrument cluster which had a square wave on for the RPM. There was another wire that was running there for the speed. Then you had that same, another wire, but with the same speed signal between, for instance, the ABS and the engine controller. And then you had all kinds of wires carrying all kinds of signals. And there were these dedicated wires that had these dedicated signals on them. So you needed a wire per signal. And, um, Having spoken to uh, one of the uh, original designers of of uh, of the BMW twelve hundred that was released in I think it was two thousand and four, um, they shaved off, and this is kind of where my memory is fading. I think they shaved off about thirty kilograms, which would be you know give or take um, you know, fifteen pounds. No, sixty no, no, something. Uh, sixty pounds. There yeah. we go. Um, in and a lot of that was switching to the CAN bus. The eleven fifty, which was obviously the generation prior to that, um, was you know non CAN bus, and then came the the twelve hundred GS, which was a CAN bus bike, and they saved uh, a lot of that uh, saving was uh, was copper, the weight of the copper of the harness. So with that um, would be know, complexity as well. Um, it, the the system becomes less complex, less cumbersome. Well, you know, that depends whom you ask. You ask somebody who understands CAN um, and the digital sort of signals, they go, absolutely. I mean, we have these two wires that connect all of these control units and it is a lot less complex. And you have, you know, you ask somebody that doesn't understand it, they go, where do I start? Something goes wrong. I have no idea where to start. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of follow up on that. So let's kind of move into, uh, into CAN and what CAN does. It's literally... Uh, just a data network. It exchanges data. Now there are lots of um, different protocols for uh, for CAN, and I'm not even going to go into the data layers of those. Um, but essentially, in the ones that we'll be talking about, they are working on a broadcast system. 
So the ABS, for instance, would be getting front wheel and rear wheel speed from the speed sensors. It either would or wouldn't, um, you know, uh, make that an aggregate uh, of the speed. Uh, that depends on manufacturer. But let's just say they uh, they have the speed and they now transmit a message saying, this is my message ID and it contains speed. And it sends that data and it would send that at, uh, let's say, a... Uh, interval of every 20 milliseconds. So the CAN data is sent at different intervals uh, depending on how quickly it changes. So you can think RPM and, and uh, would change a lot faster than engine temperature, for instance. So engine temperature will be sent every half a second broadcast on the bus and uh, RPM would be sent every 10 milliseconds, for instance. So you have the uh, ABS just saying, speed is this, speed is this, speed is this, speed is this. And you've got the engine controller saying, my engine temperature is this. And then, you know, lots of times in between it would go, uh, my RPM is that, my RPM is that, my RPM is that. And it just continuously on this bus, it just sends this data. Now you think to yourself, but why is it doing that? So on the other side of the bus sits the instrument cluster and it has to show the speed, the RPM, the engine temperature, and it's just sitting there listening and going, ah, that message contains the RPM and it displays the RPM. That message contains the speed and it, and it displays the speed. And so it does for, you know, the left turn signal and the engine light and the engine temperature and so forth. So this is literally just a data exchange mechanism where every controller broadcasts its um, relevant data to just onto the network and everybody's connected to the network and they just handpick the units or the values that they're interested in. Now, when you say everybody, what you're saying is each separate every computer, control. there's multiple yeah. computers on the bike. Correct. So currently I have a, in the garage down here is a 850 GS Adventure. That has the engine controller, it has ABS, it has instrument cluster, it has, um, I think, a satellite body controller, it has the telematics module, which is, you know, the emergency uh, button that you get in, in, in Europe where you, can, where you can press that. So they were at six already. I'm sure I'm, I'm missing a couple. Um, Anyway, that, that gives you an idea of sort of uh, the basic bikes. If we go onto something like a RT or a K16, you can easily get up to, I'm guessing, 12 plus control units that are all connected on, on the CAN bus. Right. And we're and not then, just talking BMW here. I mean, uh, you, you are talking BMW, but there well, are, it's I'm, on I'm other bikes too. Correct. It's yeah. absolutely on other bikes too. There are very, very few that don't have a CAN bus these days. Right. Um, I have a, you know, I've been doing lots of work on the, on the Tenere 700, you know, the EU4, EU5, the World Raid. Um, they all have the CAN bus. Um, you know, you, you, you think it's a very simple bike, Yet, you know, the CAN bus is there to simplify it. You know, it's less wiring, data exchange is easy. Um, it's easy, relatively easy to fault find. Um, so, yeah, they, they all share the same, uh, you know, structure. Um, you know, they might have less control units. I mean, the, 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 uh, the World Raid uh, T7 that's down here actually has the instrument cluster, the ABS and the engine controller, and then it's got the uh, Bluetooth module as well. So it's only got four control units, whereas the normal T T7 only has three. So they're, they're amalgamating just, some controllers in some cases? Is that what it is? 
Um, no, it's just, you know, complexity of the bike. Um, the T7 is a lot less complex, if we can call it complex. You know, it doesn't have a body controller. They still use relays to switch the high beam and the low beam and the uh, turn signals and so forth, where other uh, bikes will have a body controller that literally, you know, has outputs that control the high beam, the horn, the uh, switches on the on the, on the, on the, on the um, handlebars. Right. And so forth. So that, that, that's just pretty much how how cost effective the OE wanted to go. So the, you know, there's the bare basics, which is sort of engine ABS and instrument cluster, and then it goes all the way down to tire pressure sensors, body controllers, um, radio, um, and so forth, and so forth. So, and this is the problem with with trying to use you know traditional or or old school methods for diagnosing something is that you, you can't see this signal you can't put a test light on it as far as a test light goes and as you mentioned it's so hard to get in there to actually get to a wire Correct. but you can't put a test light on it and see it because we're talking signals these are signals that are being sent yep right yes that that indeed is difficult i mean the the most impressive I've seen was a guy that contacted us many years ago um, that bought a diagnostic tool. Um, and he just, you, you could see he was just in awe. And I dug into this a little more because, you know, you, you get some people that, that are just, you know, amazed by this. And, and you can see they, they've had an experience. And I, and I dug into what the experience was. And he had a workshop in Mozambique. And he eventually bought a oscilloscope, which, you know, for the non-technically inclined people is a very complex piece of testing kit with which you can see signals. You know, it literally shows you an analog waveform of the signal. And he would put this onto the wiring of whatever he was working on and spending days trying to figure out what was wrong, you know, and, and only as far as, um, you know, wiring problems and 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 things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, w- I was in awe, you know, that somebody would even go that far to try and, you know, solve problems. And, you know, this just, you know, was an absolute game changer for him. Let's take a quick little break. I want to tell you about one thing. When we come back, we'll talk about adding accessories to your bike because modern bikes can be difficult to add accessories because they use CAN bus. And in some cases, unless you use the system to activate your accessories, it's all but impossible to get them to work, at least properly. Now, that's perhaps the bad news. The good news is that the solution is so easy. I mean, it's almost as easy as plugging in a toaster. Almost. Stay with us. We all know about standing up on an adventure motorcycle, how important it is for control. Well, when you're standing, what are you standing on? That's also part of your tool, an important part of your tool, because the foot peg shape, the way it is made, the size of it, all change the way you can handle the bike. It will improve your skill of handling your bike to have a peg that is designed specifically for riding an adventure bike. A wider peg gives you more leverage, a peg with better traction on it or proper traction on it will keep you connected to the peg and a peg that is designed to shed out any mud or crap that falls into it is extremely important. All this is built in to the IMS products foot pegs. 
IMS makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. If you're not riding on them now, you should be. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. So that brings us to, to the easy can, what we're going to talk about here, because what you mentioned there was you mentioned some bike, you know, one bike, for instance, is still using relays to turn high beam to low beam. Many people mm-hmm. will think, well, that's how you do it. That's how it's always been done. But that doesn't, that's not the system that is used with more, uh, a more advanced motorcycle because they're using a computer that's connecting through this CAN bus and the computer is using the computer language to turn the signal on and off to the power for the light. Correct. Okay. So what sort of problems do we run into when we start adding accessories onto these sorts of things? So adding accessories becomes difficult um, if you look at the very basic of adding an accessory. Let's say we want to add a auxiliary light. Uh, the question is, do you want this light to go on when you switch the ignition on? Do you all only want this to go on when you have the high beam on? So now you have an option. You can take a auxiliary light. You can power it by a, through a relay to the battery directly, and you can put a switch on it. And then you you are in total control. You can mount this switch on the handlebar, and you switch it on whenever you want it to be on. But you know, being being human, the typical you know first problem there is now you come home, you you know switch off the bike or whatever you do, and light's still on uh you forgot the switch on and you know tomorrow morning you only started and you know you've got a dead battery for sure Mm. so um then people go okay no no but i want to power this not directly from the battery i want to power it from an ignition signal or you know directly from a powered uh switched ignition you know power and that's kind of where in you know early so mid mid 20 20 teens whatever you want to call it um, they started running into problems because there no longer was an ignition wire. So, you know, you want, you want to trigger that relay somehow that, you know, when you switch the ignition on, the relay goes on and it powers the light. And then when you switch the ignition off, then, um, you know, the, the uh, ignition input is, is dropped and the relay goes off and your light's off and you don't have a dead battery anymore. Um, so when CAN came along, there was no more ignition or very little bikes had ignition. And then suddenly people started going, oh, well, you know, I'll just use the the running light, the rear light, and my tail light. And then bikes got a little more complex and the tail light now uh, combines with the brake light and you have a pulse width modulated signal that runs to this light. And um, pardon me for throwing in some 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 acronyms and jargon there, but pulse width modulation is exactly what it says. It, it's a, instead of having a solid sort of 12 volt signal on the light, it will have a, a pulse of a varying length so if you have a a running light, it's sort of just your dim tail light, it'll be running at, call it, you know, 20, 30%. This pulse, pulse if you look at the, the width of the pulse, it'll be on for 30% and off for 70%. So it just, your eye perceives it as being dim. And then when you hit the brake, they up this to maybe 90%. And then, you know, you see a much brighter light because your eye doesn't refresh as fast as the PWM frequency that the light's using. But still, you can't use this on a relay because it's going uh, on and off a couple of hundred times a second. And, you know, your relays don't like that. So it becomes tough to actually, you know, connect stuff to the bike. To just absolutely just the bare basics that, you know, you wanted to switch on when the bike is on and off when the bike is off. And that's kind of where the problem is. Okay, hang on. Did you catch that? Did you catch what he just said? What he's saying is that light 
no longer works like a normal light. So if you put your test light there, you're not going to see what you expect because the light is pulsing faster than what our eyes perceive it. So in other words, it's kind of like you hitting a, a button on there really, really fast, faster than what you could ever do. And as you speed it up, the light gets brighter. And as you slow down your pressing of the buttons, your light gets dimmer. That is completely unconventional. And this is what we're talking about with adding accessories and with troubleshooting. Things don't work like they used to in the past, but there is reason behind it. And there's logic to understanding it and figuring out what goes wrong. Right. So, so something so simple as that becomes yep. a, an issue. Even, even changing your, your light, your signal light, if you're, it has an incandescent light to an LED, you mm -hmm. can get an error. Correct. So you're, because the computer sees the values there different. So this is the issue that we run into. So mm -hmm. what's the workaround? for hooking up some sort of auxiliary system on your CAN bus equipped motorcycle. Yeah, so that's where we developed the uh, Easy CAN. Um, and yeah, every time I tell the story, I have a, a wry smile on my face. Um, thinking, you know, the, if I compare it to the product that we had developed for the 4x4 kind of, you know, adventure market, and then eventually just shelved, it was almost think of the size of a mobile phone and, you know, uh, about an inch thick. Um, and we sort of looked at that when, when the bikes started getting more and more complex and we thought, you know, we, 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 we had something there. Let's refine this. Let's make this easy to fit, easy to configure and a lot smaller. And that's kind of where the easy can, uh, name came from. Um, so, you know, the easy can is, you know, I'd say roughly the size of my thumb and, um, you connect that to the battery permanently. It is through a 30 amp fuse just, you know, to be safe. And there's no reason, you know, if you have place, uh, space for a fuse, you know, why not use a real one? Um, then we have a connection to the CAN bus of the bike, which allows us to listen to the CAN bus only. We have also um, took precautions that we do not transmit anything on the CAN bus. We literally only listen on the CAN bus. And then we have four outputs. And these four outputs you can configure to do whatever the Easy CAN does. And um, literally, you click on any of those four, they're color coded. We have a red and a blue and a yellow and a white circuit. And you pick, for instance, the red one and you say, I want this to be an auxiliary headlight. And then you've got all kinds of things that you can additionally configure. I mean, you think of the size of the lights that people are adding to the bikes these days. You, uh, I jokingly say people can look two days into the future. Um, some of these, you know, you would want on most definitely if you're the front person of a group or if you're a lone rider and you've got your high beam on, but it's definitely not something you want to be driving as a second or a third in a group or uh, even during the day um, on, you know, when you're riding. So the workaround there was to give the, um, the opportunity to set the brightness of those lights to certain conditions. So you plug one of those big lights um, onto, a, onto an easy can, um, no relays, no nothing. And then literally in the software, you say, if it's on low beam, I want this to be on at, you know, and that's up to you. But, you know, for argument's sake, I'm going to say 10%. And then if I'm on high beam, I want this to be on 100%, for instance. Um, and then as you switch uh, your uh, 
lights on your bike using the switches that are already part of your of your um, handlebar cluster to from uh, low beam to high beam. That signal is sent on the CAN bus. The EasyCAN sees, oh, hang on a minute, I've switched from low beam to high beam, so I'm now increasing the brightness from 10% to 100%. And vice versa, if you switch that to low beam again, it does the opposite. And you know now we can get really fancy, now we can go, but um, I don't want this to be abrupt. So I fade it on and I fade it off. And then we can add little things that people can go and they have little tick selections. And they can say, well, you know, if I um, hit the horn, I want my lights to strobe three times. Um, wow. And that, that might sound like a silly example. And the first time we sort of thought about this, we thought, mm, you know, not sure how this will go down with authorities but, you know, being bikers ourselves, eventually you go, hey, this is about my safety. And I must say, uh, in all the years that I've had easy cans on, on, on my bikes, um, it saved my backside twice. And one was actually quite recent. I was testing one of the easy cans on, on um, the Pan America and I took it on. We have a, a trail around here that we call the um, uh, Trans Euro Trail, the Tet and it doesn't run too far from my house. And it was dark and I was riding on the trail and, you know, testing some features on the lights. And as I came back onto the main road, um, there was a, a sort of T-junction uh, from the left and a car stopped and I saw it pull off. And as I hit the horn, the light strobe, but I hit the horn just to kind of get their attention. I didn't even think about the strobing. But you can see, you know, when 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 a horn goes off, people go, who is that? Where is that? Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. But when they see that strobing, it literally, they immediately know where it is. And, you know, you, you see the, the nose of the car dip and you go, that was close. Uh, but there's so many little things you can configure. And those are all messages based on messages that, that come by, and whether it's the horn that's activated or the lights. Okay, so let's let me back up here. So so this easy can system, this tiny little thing, it plugs into what? It plugs onto the CAN bus. Is it in line in the CAN bus? So you're you're opening up a, a connection, you're putting it in line? Correct. Okay. So well, yes and no. So on the BMWs, it's in line. On some, if not most of the other bikes, we literally plug into the diagnostic port on the bike because the diagnostic port on many of the bikes is just connected onto the CAN bus and nothing else is connected to that. It just plugs in there, it connects to the battery and that's it. Those are your two connections. It is so easy and, and so super fast. And then, you know, you have these four outputs and you can connect whatever you like to those. Right. So, so let me just go through that. So you've got this 30 amp connection directly to your battery. You've got yep. four output wires that you can program to do anything you want. Your Correct. CAN bus system listens to the system. And the reason it's doing that is because you use all of the controls on your motorcycle to control what these four outputs are going to do. So if you, you like you said, you had the auxiliary lights or, or whatever you wanted to put on there, you can make them react to the controls that are already on your motorcycle. I mean, you, so you're saving Correct. a lot of time here. Instead of putting a switch up there for your for your auxiliary lights, maybe you put on, you tell it to turn on when you put your high beams on, for instance, and it does it automatically because it's listening to what the CAN bus is doing. Correct. And then sort of come all the little nuances that you can add. For instance, the strobing when the horn um, is uh, is activated. Or, on um, you know, we have very popular in, in, in the States are the additional brake lights. Mm -hmm. um, and we listen to the brake signal and we put the additional brake lights on. 
But not just do we put the initial brake lights on, now that we're on the bus, we also know what the exact speed is. And because the speed is sent in very precise uh, intervals, we can determine what the deceleration is. And based on the deceleration, we can actually strobe the brake lights if you are on fast deceleration. So whether that is uh, a, a tap off of the throttle in terms of engine braking on some of the big bore bikes, or if that is you absolutely hammering the brakes and then suddenly your, your brake lights start strobing. Um, and that's because we are monitoring the speed signal and we're monitoring and or you know the brake signal depending on oh. you know whether you want to show that so there's so many other things you you know you can just kind of just do incredible safety thing there for sure because many times on a motorcycle you don't touch the brakes you just it's it's enough to just let off the throttle exactly to decelerate wow that's that's incredible now the thing is you know we mentioned that 30 amp connection directly to the battery then we mentioned feeding these other four wires that we have going to whatever accessory mm-hmm. we want if one of those wires shorts overloads for whatever reason mm-hmm. what happens so um, I gave you an indication that there was a red, blue, yellow, and a white channel, and they are marked as such, uh, you know, as outputs, and they are also obviously marked in the software. And just under that channel selection, um, you have got a fuse setting, and the fuse you can set anything from one amp to, I think, twenty-five amps is the max, um, and that is what we call the soft fuse, and you set that individually per channel. And um, one of the things I was referring to e- uh, earlier was sort of the algorithm that we use uh, for that fusing. And I'll, I'll expand on that a little later. But let me just um, sort of finish uh, with the question you had. So imagine you had a front light pod and we had the uh, channel set to seven amps. And, you know, this has uh, chafed through because it wasn't, you know, tied to the harness nicely or whatever the case may be Um, and you have a short to the uh, on that output channel and it exceeds the fused value the uh, that specific output gets switched off um, in a matter of microseconds and um, the other three still work perfectly fine you will then see on the back of the easy can if you have a look at it you'll see the red uh, flashing uh, led Um, you can also you know plug in the software if you want to but there's no real reason to do that but as soon as you reset or cycle the ignition, that resets the fuse. So if you have fixed it, then obviously, you know, you'll be good to go again. If you uh, have not fixed it, it'll just fuse again, you know, but uh, at least you don't have to carry a whole uh, pocket full of fuses with you. It's it's just incredible. Now, is there any indication that because it resets there when you turn the ignition back on, is there any indication that you did have a fault, much like the computer on the motorcycle would do, saying that there was a fault here and it was a short circuit? Not after you reset it. Not that's actually reset. something, yeah, that's on our future to-do list. So we have a list, uh, you know, as, as long as my forearm <laughs> with all kinds of um, features that we that we want to add and implement, um, you know, in, in the coming year. Right, because cause if it was the example you gave there with the wire just bouncing and, and touching, it could mm-hmm. kind of throw you for a loop. It, it, it shuts off one time and you reset and all of a sudden it's working again and then you have to wait till the next time. Uh, it happens. This is the the curse, of course, of of uh, electrical problems. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Many times is that uh, you can only find them when they're actually doing what they're not supposed to be doing. Now, you were talking about the fusing, and, and I, I think what you were going to talk about is something to do with um, uh, uh, yeah. starting, for instance, a, an air pump, which is problematic. Yeah. So the the thing with even the uh, bikes, you know, of recent times, uh, you know, call it a twenty twenty two model, if you like. 
um, that uh, power their auxiliary outputs using a body controller. They that body controller literally uh, monitors the uh, the current. Uh, that it supplies. And BMW, as an example, again, I keep on using BMW because that's just, you know, because of the GS901, I have uh, miles and miles of information (laughs) on BMWs, Mm -hmm. but they all work the same, essentially. So on the uh, previous generation of BMWs, they had these uh, on seven amps, and then they later increased it to nine amps. And there are some of them that are running at 11 amps these days. Um, But the Essential functionality is still exactly the same in that if the output starts drawing, let's say we had one that had a 9 amp limit, and as soon as it draws 9.1 or 9.2 amps, it fuses just like that. So it shuts the circuit Um, off. It literally just goes over the threshold and it shuts it off. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we find with a lot of uh, accessories, and it's not just the air pumps, that's just a really nice example, and, and, and I'll expand on the air pump, but even on the bigger um, accessory lights that we use because they are switch mode lights. They've got these inrush currents into the capacitors in, on the PC board of the lights. Um, and you get the same phenomena, which we call an inrush current. And the inrush current is very, uh, for a very small uh, time period, but it is much larger than the steady state current. So, you know, going back to a, a uh, compressor that, you know, most of us on, on adventure bikes use, well, I guess, depending on if you do a lot of sand riding. Um, we have these compressors and they might be drawing, for argument's sake, let's call it a four or five amps, which is way within the specification of, of the um, output that uh, the bikes provide or the body controllers. And then as soon as you switch it on, there is an inrush current. Then that inrush current can be anything from three to five times the steady state current. And as you, you know, if you do the simple maths, you go, hang on a minute, if I've got four amps, times that by four, 16 amps. And literally, if you plug that into an output of a of a body controller um, and you switch the pump on or you think you switch it on, it's just nothing happens. It, it literally off is just off because it's shut off so quickly that you didn't even realize. Mm-hmm. So what we did, and that's something that we took from the previous product when we developed this for the for the 4x4 market, was we developed an algorithm that looks at the energy over time. So if you, for instance, I mean, think how a fuse works. You've got this little fuse wire, and if you pass current through it, it's like a resistive wire, and it starts heating up. If it heats up uh, a lot, then it melts, and your fuse is fused. And in order for it to heat up, you know, it has to, you know, pass energy through it. So if you have a, well, the one thing I guess we have to say initially is that a, you know, seven and a half amp fuse is not a seven and a half amp fuse, you know, being uh, mechanical tolerances uh, and all kinds of, uh, you know, the way that it's manufactured. There's a big tolerance on mechanical fuses. You, you just mean because because of the way the fuse is inherently made that it, you abs- can't get it that exact. Absolutely. But you know now now looking at uh, at the rest of that is now you want to warm up that fuse thread so that you can fuse it if you know too much current is drawn. So if you have a let's take a seven and a half amp fuse and you pass eight amps, nine amps, ten amps through it nothing much happens and you go hang on a minute what's going on with my fuse but there's still not enough energy to actually burn through the fusing wire whereas if you put uh, 30 amps or 80 amps or whatever through there for a really 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 short period of time it would be 
you know, in a split second and it's gone. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the amount of energy that's passed through this fusing wire. And we sort of followed that principle and we developed an algorithm that looks at the energy over time or integrated over time. Whereas, you know, if you have, if you're a little bit over your uh, limit, then, you know, it accumulates to a certain threshold. And if it hasn't reached that threshold of energy, then we don't fuse. And if you have a large current flowing through there over, you know, uh, that would accumulate really, really quickly to that threshold. Then it, it trips the fuse. And that works really well. Um, and it's kind of transparent to the end user. They they don't, you know, m most people don't have a technical understanding and they don't want to be bothered to understand why this works or doesn't work, you know, on, on, on their bike. They sure. just want it to work. You know, they know if they put a seven and a half amp fuse onto their uh, air compressor, it always worked. Why the heck does it not work now? Even if I choose seven and a half amps in an easy can, you know, it should work because that's what I'm used to. And that's just, you know, how life works. <laughs> and that's kind of where we drew on our past experience. And we took all the things that that worked uh, from the previous product that we had shelved and, and we kind of built that into the easy can. So you basically took the analog fuse and made a digital copy of it. In a way, correct. Wow, that's that's very nice. That's good thinking because, in particular, with a with a, an electric motor, uh, every electric motor when it starts takes a surge of power, and a lot of that's you know, inertia and friction and things like that. Yeah. So the the uh, compressor is no different. And over time, as a motor wears, it can draw more current as well overall. And I have my example of this is is my compressor. I've had it for years now. And, and it's getting old, it must be, because now it's tripping the circuit on my bike, which uh, it used to run on all the time. Mm -hmm. It's no longer doing that. And that, that there's your, my indication, okay, it's time for a pump or maybe some maintenance work uh, on the pump. But the, Absolutely the, correct. The flexibility that you have here with this easy can just blows my mind. I mean, I, I think it's just incredible. And it just opens up so many possibilities for us, all without any chance of damaging the motorcycle or the infrastructure of the, or the, the technology, the computer, because like you said, it's only listening. Well, therein lies another big feature of the EasyCan. Um, it was only recently that, that uh, you know, this, this came to my realization when we had some of the OEs approach us and say, um, you know, hey guys, when are you doing this for that model or that model or that model? And, you know, obviously being curious, I'm like, uh, why? And they said, well, you know, uh, customers being customers, they tend to want to fit things to their bike and they A, try first themselves. And then mm. once it's broken, they take it to the dealership and the dealership right. has to fix it. <laughs> um, and this specific um, brand had been fixing a couple of harnesses, um, you know, over the past year where customers had tried to fit accessories. And the EasyCan effectively grants them this, call it a sort of a, a buffer, um, you know, a, a firewall if you want to, where on the one side, you know, there's the bike and on the other side, there's the EasyCan with its four outputs. And literally these are not connected. There is no cutting into wires. There is no tapping into wires. You literally have, you know, the easy can that's listening to the CAN bus plugged onto the battery or connected to the battery, and then it's got these outputs. And that kind of, you know, really firewalls the rest of the bike from whatever accessories the guys are fitting. So this this solves my my initial issue is what I was talking about as far as adding accessories go. Or one of the things I talked about was connection to the battery. If you run, you know, four circuits, for instance, to the battery with a motorcycle battery, you are quickly running out of space and it just becomes an <laughs> absolute mess. 
Absolutely. And then the other thing it does is is all these other benefits that you've got with with the CAN bus system, all keeping it separate, as you're saying, from the motorcycle system itself. It, it kind of opens things up for us because like I can imagine that manufacturer, what their thought process is, if people get frustrated to the point where they cannot customize their motorcycle, because most of us do some sort of customization, then you're going to leave it. Then you're going to say, forget it. I had so much trouble with that bike when I just tried to put auxiliary lights on, I'm not going near it again. I mean, I can, I can mm-hmm. completely understand. But the other thing that this, this deals with what, that I'm really interested in is the fact that most times when you see somebody have a problem with their motorcycle, I shouldn't say most, a lot of times it's from something they have done. Something we've added on to our bike. We've done something. We've added something to what's already been designed and engineered. And it creates a problem. What be it a wire crossing over a piece of sharp piece of metal, maybe getting pinched when you're turning the steering head around something. And that, that causes a problem. And what this does is, is allows that problem to be sort of dealt with without affecting the motorcycle itself. So you're not, um, you're not ruining your reliability that's built into the motorcycle inherently with our new systems that we have now, which are, are extremely reliable. You're not messing with that when you're adding your accessories now. Correct. It's just absolutely that that is a sort of you know safety was our main priority and it still is for the easy can it's absolutely we see it as a safety device i mean whether you're looking at the safety triangle from the front whether you're looking at the horns whether you're looking at the you know brake lights and all the auxiliary braking features that we implement uh, and then comes ease of use and uh, you know followed by reliability and you know that that's absolutely what this is aimed at what bikes does um does easy can work on like, like is, it, is it all bikes, not just BMW? No, no, it's uh, BMWs, pretty much, you know, most of them. Uh, many of the KTMs, uh, most of the Harley Davidsons, we've recently added the uh, Pan Ams uh, to that. They're, as you know, probably know, they're completely different, uh, you know, new new chassis, uh, completely different. Um, the Honda Africa Twin, very popular. And of course, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on a Transalp. Um, seeing what uh, what we can do for the Transalp. Then we are about to release uh, support for the Triumph Tigers, the, the new 1200 and the 900, and we'll most likely follow that up with the older 1200 and 800. Um, the Ducatis, um, both Multistrada and the Desert X, um, will be released uh, really early in 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 in, in uh, 2023 um i mentioned i think i i sort of hinted at the Tenere 700s you know the eu4 eu5 world raid even the new 23 model uh, of the new t7 where it has the same uh, cluster as the as the world raid the nice color display one um we're also uh, testing currently the husqvarna norden the 901 um, which is essentially you'd think it's a ktm uh, 890 but it's not um, they've changed something ever so slightly on the uh, headlight, um, at least on the electronics or should I say on the messaging of the headlight. And then I'm looking into the Aprilia Touareg 660, sort of that's, that's sort of a, a little bit sort of medium term, uh, the Aprilia Touaregs, the Motoguzis, as I said, uh, the Transalp, I really, really would love to get my hands on. And um, we're talking to a number of manufacturers. Um, we've had some initial discussions with the local um, Indian distributor. Um, And then interestingly enough, um, the Suzuki, uh, the V-Strom 800D, I think will be a good candidate. Mm. I, you know, the jury's out obviously being a new bike still, but, you know, just from what I saw at the most recent, the recent Eitmar show, um, I think it'll be a popular bike. 
And then, of course, um, don't discount uh, any of the side-by-sides. So, um, you know, I don't want to say too much there yet, but we're looking at, um, you know, some of the side-by-sides. And then we've also recently started work on um, some of the uh, 4x4s and adventure vehicles, sort of, you know, almost coming uh, full circle, if you want. Going back Um, to that original one that you shelved. Exactly. So um, there's there's a couple of things coming out. So uh, a lot uh, that are supported, but I think uh, within Q1, we are probably going to double what we currently have as an offering at this point in time. And then there's still room for a lot of growth uh, following that. And, um, you know, if, if, if there are bikes uh, or other vehicles, you know, that people you know, really want support for, you know, one of the things we've built our company on is customer feedback. You know, we started that from with the GS901 many years ago, where we insisted that for the first two years, we would uh, distribute the product all over the world directly from South Africa where, um, you know, we pretty much every um, last cent that people would think was profit, we plowed back into uh, subsidizing the shipping cost. Because as you can think from the tip of oh, Africa, right. there's, there's nothing that cheap. But what that did was every bit of feedback of every customer that bought the product came back directly through us. There's no middleman, there's no distributor, there's no anything else. And that's kind of how you make a product better you know you can only test that much but you don't know whether a um you know norden uh, 901 in the us is the same as a norden 901 in japan and um you know that's where the community becomes really really uh, uh, intricate and uh, you know part of of what we do and and how we make the product better and in the in saying that you know that's where the guys go uh, can i have it for this or can you support this model or you know there's some weird and wonderful requests we've gotten and you know as as obviously we have to you know we don't have a infinite uh, resource or resources but you know as the requests get more and more they they sort of find themselves uh, themselves going up on the on the priority level so i absolutely you know anybody that 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 feels they could uh, use a, an easy can just you know ask us we might be working on that already. Wow, this is uh, it's great stuff. I'm, I'm I'm very stoked about the possibilities of this stuff, and it was great to sit and talk with you. Thank you very much, and I, I'm, it's great that your company's doing so well. But I really hope you manage to get out there and do some more riding. I mean, long distance riding. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, thank you. It was really nice uh, talking to you, and um, yeah, I really really hope that I get some time. It's one of those things, you know, you've got to make time. You don't get the time. Nobody gives you the time. You've got to make the time. So So it is, it is on my list. Um, you know, locally here, um, I don't know if you're aware of the uh, trans Euro trail. Oh yeah. Um, but there are many, many, many miles and even just in the UK, you know, once I've done the UK, so my, my aim is summer 2023 I will have half of uh, the Trans Euro Trail of of the UK done. So that's step one. And then we'll take it from there. Thanks, Stefan. Awesome, Jim. Nice talking to you. That 
was Stefan Thiel, the founder and owner of Hex Microsystems from his home in the UK, the inventor of the GS911 and the EasyCan systems. Their website is hexinnovate.com. And of course, we'll have that link in the show notes as well as some photographs. That's all in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you for listening. Thank you very much for being a part of the show through that. Hey, before you head out there for a ride, I'd like to like to have you consider, or like you to take a minute and just think about considering supporting Adventure Rider Radio. Got a huge, huge number of listeners to this every single week, but only a very, very, very small percentage of you actually support the show. And it's built on a model of advertising and listener support. So we need you to step up and support. Become a regular supporter on our Patreon account. Anyway, all on our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. While you're at the website, we have another show that we do, if you're not aware of it, it's called Adventure Rider Radio Raw, comes out once per month. And it's very, very popular. Have a listen. You might like that as well. So all that information is on our website, adventureriderradio.com. If you've got an idea for a show or a guest, certainly there's forms uh, for contacting us on the website. We'd love to hear from you. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll talk to you next week. to be Willyfield. I'm Michas Willyfield. We're from Big Big Overland. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>